Hello, welcome to this second interview with Nakchang Rinpoche and Kandradechen talking about the Gurkha Changlo Day or non-monastic Sangha. In this episode they explain the non-hierarchical nature of the Yanas and explore magic, sorcery and village Nakpas with references to Jimi Hendrix, Mozart and Al Capone. Hello Rinpoche Kandradechen. Um, could you say something about the view of the yanas as hierarchic, that one yana is higher or better than another? I think that although there is some truth in that, uh, it's a highly unfortunate way to look at it. Um, we never present any hierarchy of the yanas. Uh, as far as we present them, they're all perfect. There are a higher and lower individuals who practice the yanas and you practice what's appropriate for you. Uh, if you can't drive a car, uh, then you might be safer on a bicycle. You, know, you might not kill yourself on the bicycle, but you might kill yourself in a car if you can't drive it. You might kill somebody else with it. So uh, we tend to see all the vehicles as equal. They are for different individuals who have different capacities. Does that capacity vary for an individual? Might they need to practice different yanas at different times or in different situations? Certainly. I mean, it, you know, it's... Um, I always joke about the fact that I was once uh, 17 stone, I'm now 10 and a half stone, and that is entirely due to the practice of renunciation. <laughs> so that when I exercise and, and don't eat whatever I want to eat, that's not transformation, that's renunciation. And so um, all the yanas are open all the time for practice, and what practices what's appropriate not what's fashionable, not what's exciting, not what's whatever it is, it's what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. And if you understand practice, then you practice what's appropriate. The whole idea of one yana being higher than another undermines the benefit that mm. you get from a full understanding of the yanas, which means that you understand the renunciate path and you understand Tantra as the transformational path and you see contradiction in those two paths as not a problem. So uh, a comprehensive understanding of the yanas is so beneficial for practitioners um, then there has to be no sectarianism. So this is why we would undermine the tendency or choose not to focus on the idea that one yana is higher than another. It's just fundamentally, there is enough um, <laughs> bad feeling in the world. Um, so we would rather ignore things that tend to produce that bad feeling between groups of people. Is it a lack of understanding about the yanas that can lead to some of the misperceptions about the Gurkha Changlo Day that we occasionally encounter? in academic quarters, you think. I'm, I'm thinking of the idea that Nakpas are somehow roguish or even a bit shifty, 
that there's something morally ambiguous about them or their practices. Could this idea stem from a misunderstanding of the yana within which they're practicing? Yes, this, this comes back to the renunciate question, where if someone's supposed to be a renunciate, you know, why are they engaged with life? Uh, this would give rise to the idea that uh, in somehow uh, they're not conducting themselves properly or that they have some kind of excuse for what they're doing that's not quite believable. Uh, if one comes from that position then one's going to misunderstand in that way. Of course also, you know, the, the idea that uh, the, the Ngakpang Sangha are roguish or shifty, um, from what I've gathered, from what I've read in certain quarters, this seems to be, um, there's something in that that supports the idea of certain people that that's what they'd like to do, they'd like to be rogues, they'd like to be renegades of some kind. Um, over the last 50 years, uh, I, I've seen a lot of uh, people uh, develop an interest in Vajrayana who've come from some esoteric background in the West, uh, including Satanism, and they see uh, uh, reflections of that in Vajrayana with the wrathful awareness beings and they try to make a bridge between those things. You know, people who've had interests in theosophy and various magical forms are attracted to it because they think they can see similarity. Uh, magic has never interested us. Uh, being shifty or roguish has never interested us. Uh, uh, the furthest I've been into being roguish is, that you, is uh, making atrocious puns uh, all the time, uh, but that's about the limit of it. Um, there's really very little difference in terms of practice, in terms of being uh, a monastic or being uh, a ngakpa or ngakma, because we all practice the same thing. I've practiced with monks and nuns in India and Nepal, uh, particularly in the Nyingma Gompas, where, where monastics and the Gurkha Chango, they practice alongside each other. And really, we're just all practitioners, and there is no difference there. What about the idea of Nakpas being more involved with the shamanic elements of Buddhism? Do you think that's why they sometimes get associated with magic or? or even sorcery we sometimes see being used to describe the nature of their activity. I think there might be. Um, I've, I've also come across this word sorcery being used. Um, the problem is that when one translates, uh, one has to be extremely careful about the English that's chosen. Uh, sorcery is not an appropriate word to use because it has a a meaning that's linked with m malignant entities and uh, sorcery doesn't equate to a Tibetan word. Uh, for example, they used to, I don't think anyone does it anymore, but uh, translate digpa as sin. Uh, 
Now, now, if you use the word sin, it's quite loaded. It, it may not be entirely inaccurate, but we translate digpa as error rather than sin, uh, because it isn't loaded with these connotations. Um, so, yes, there are village nakpas, and you could describe them as shamanic, although that's also misleading. They engage in practices often that, that help the local people. But then these are not practices that monks and nuns can't practice. And in fact, in Chimirugzum Roche's Gompa, um, at a certain point, this is a long story that I won't go into, that he tells about you know, you know, teaching the monks how to make rain. And so rainmaking, which is considered to be one of these uh, shamanic practices, is something that can also be practiced by monastics. So there's nothing that divides the two sanghas in what they practice, because everything comes from the tantras for both sanghas. So what they practice is all available to all of them. Um, what they call the village nakpas, uh, they were simply people who were called upon because they had capacity in practice in order to help local people. Sometimes they were herbalists. I knew uh, a herbalist uh, like this wonderful man called Nakpadawa who spent his life walking between McLeod Gange and Leh in Ladakh. I don't know how many hundreds of miles that is, but it's, it's a long way over extremely rough terrain. He'd uh, gather herbs and minerals as he went. He had a certain route where he collected them. He'd make medicines, he'd provide medicines, he'd be supported, he, he was a doctor, he'd help people, and that's just what he did. He walked backwards and forwards. So. He would be uh, something you'd describe as a village nakpa, except he never lived in the village. He was always walking and gathering herbs. So um, uh, th these are people who um, were actually majorly characterized by compassionate activity. They helped people. Mm. And I think there's something about um, the way that these roles developed in, was in terms of their accessibility because Nakpas are not living in mainly in monastic institutions. There are many in villages and the remote areas. Um, they're accessible to the people who require help. So if you've got a sick person, you don't want to have to walk five miles down the road to the Gompa to fetch the monk. You, you want your Nakpa who's living there in, in the locality to come and help your sick person. So it's a question of accessibility, which contributes to the development of that role, I believe. Um, if I can head back towards um, that term, or the use of this term sorcery, um, there's this term nupa or nuspa as it's spelt. Um, this term has been translated um, in academic circles as uh, supernatural powers or magical powers or sorcery. But when you look at 
the translation of this word. I, I feel that this translation into magical power has uh, quite a translational bias, I would say, because if you compare all the dictionaries, there are many Tibetan dictionaries now, there's only really one dictionary that translates it as magical power. Um, and that dictionary and all the others translated as efficacy or capability, um, power that is outside the norm, but not, i.e. super normal, but not supernatural. So it, it means somebody who has great capacity or energy to effect change, but it doesn't necessarily mean magic. Um, it could describe uh, Jimi Hendrix, for example. Mm. Yes, it could describe uh, uh, Mozart. Uh, uh, he had supranormal capability in, with music and composition. Um, it doesn't describe something that's um, magic. Well, it doesn't describe something that's magical, supernatural. Um, also, the other word that I'd like to raise at this point is the Engak means bad mantra. But there isn't such a thing as a bad mantra, there's only bad intention. It's like, um, it's the same argument with a gun. It's not the gun that has the intention to kill, it's the person who wields the gun who has the intention to kill. Um, now, Professional religious people don't have that bad intention. Why would they have that bad intention? The whole point of Buddhist teaching is about compassionate activity. I mean, you know, uh, I think the gun is very interesting in that way because uh, the gun was actually designed to kill people and yet you don't have to use it for that end. I mean, you can use it just for target practice and enjoy it in that way. But if you look at another object, like a baseball bat, that was not designed to kill people. But um, Al Capone uh, uh, dispatched at least one person with a baseball bat. That was not its purpose, but that was its use. And, and I, I think if, if you compare those, you can see um, that it's the intention rather than the object. I think in the West, um, from the Judeo-Christian background, um, as soon as you've got uh, God and the devil, then you have the creation of the devil, so there can be inherently evil objects. But in terms of Buddhism, there is not an evil object. Objects don't have intentions. It's people who have intentions. And so you can use anything for any end you like, you know, it's your intention that is important, you know, whether you have a, an altruistic intention or whether you have a self-serving intention.